0: everybody and even if for some supernatural or technological reason you don't have a body i'm your friendly neighborhood layman pascal and this is the integral stage subseries called love the system devoted to procedures processes projects protocols politics and the general systemic interbehavioral domain of reality without which our health and wisdom are lame and unable to sustain themselves or change the world Today, I'm sitting down with Welf Von Horen, who was recommended to me by my pal, Jim Rutt. I know Jim has an interest in Welf's potential app, but Jim's also a guy I respect and like a great deal and who's welcome in my bunker when the disruption comes. So I took that suggestion on board and we'll be exploring Welf's app, his company, the concept of a social medium of choice, and the broader dimensions of how human well-being and development on a personal and collective level could be understood technically and augmented through wise media with proper incentives, maybe contextualized by a deeper understanding of what human beings are or could be or need. Hi wealth. <laughs> Hi Layman. I'm I'm stoked to be here. <laughs> what is here's actually something that's been on my mind. What's up with the Germanic spirit lately? Because whether it's Game B or meta modernism or synthism or Integral Europe or Bildung or Parallax, it seems like a lot of people in the leading-edge, integrative and developmental space are coming out of the broadly Germanic cluster of nations. Do you think there's mm. something there that's specially supportive or challenging that's enabling a lot of leading-edge, compassionate thinking?
1: <laughs> um, good question. I personally in in Germany, I feel like there's a lot of complacency um, that for for those who who think themselves for whatever reason leads to a lot of thinking <laughs> <laughs> and um, that leads to funny uh, the imperative to find the others uh, which leads to i guess more of that stuff coming out
0: a lot of thoughtful people looking for other thoughtful people yes okay. <laughs> A lot of people listening, I'm sure, have no idea what the Potential app is. So maybe you could give a little summary of of what this piece of architecture is.
1: Yeah, so Potential is both a company and an app. uh, And the, the vision really is to make the best possible technology to help you live intentionally. So that means technology that helps you mediate your attention on a day-to-day basis and helps you make choices that are aligned with your best interest. And that's sort of the the mission that we're on and potentially as it is today is uh, basically a tool for intentionality and behavior change, something like a daily planner, uh, something like a habit tracker, but it also transforms the choice architecture of your phone um, around these themes. And that turns out to have a profound impact on your ability to do the things that you actually want to do. Um, And we've launched the beta in December and uh, we have some early customers that absolutely love it and that actually changes their behavior. And we're very early in the process.
0: I love the idea of something that tries to help you use your phone, use the internet, use all these systems because there's a real... Um, a real asymmetry between individual human Mm. beings and what's available in these systems. Like even even in simple systems, like there's no possible way I can find out about and take advantage of even all the government services that my family could potentially benefit from, let alone Mm. 24-7 everybody and automated systems producing all of this information. In in a sense, there's no possible way that I can be a competent user of the internet, especially Mm. when I have to, Think of what I want, get it correct, turn it into language, send that language through my fingers, and then hope that I got the right search results and then evaluate those search results and act on them like the amount of the internet that I can actually use is so insignificant that it's to be preposterous. So anything that helps me be a better user or uses it for me to some degree is something that I think is essential for our species to make any progress at this point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the biggest shift that, that we haven't really fully appreciated, especially in the tech industry, but also as consumers, is just how different a world the world is now that we have this hyperabundance of information and also this hyperabundance of entertainment, right? Because it means that it's, it's, it's no like the, the information already is at our fingertips. Um, so information is not the thing that is missing in our capacity to live a good life, really. And entertainment is kind of getting in the way of that very capacity. So, um, yeah, the, the, those are some of the fundamental shifts um, that completely change what we need out of technology, and I think that's that's where we're starting.
0: So if information isn't what's missing, if information has, in fact, become hyper-abundant, through certain new technological shifts in certain particular corporations, what is missing? What do we need a lot more of? Well, the thing that both information and
1: entertainment consume is attention. So that leads to the question, what is attention, right? Let's define our terms. Um, and I like James Williams um, that th- our attention is effectively not just what we pay attention to uh, not just our awareness moment to moment, but sort of this full stack of capacities by which we navigate life. Um, and that includes uh, you know doing the things that we intend to do that includes some sense of wisdom of figuring out what what is it actually that we want out of life, and that very capacity is consumed by uh, this overload of information and this this uh, godlike uh, godlike seduction of of entertainment
0: we need more of whatever attention stands for is a cluster of things like it's it's focus and it's intention and it's sense-making and it's choice-making and it's sovereignty and it's some element of wisdom things like that i noticed in um, in the sort of manifesto that i saw social medium of choice which is a great document i really enjoyed it it talks about focusing on choice rather than sense-making. And I was wondering about that distinction. Why do you think it's more important to focus on choice? Um, I think, frankly, sense-making is an incredibly hard problem
1: to solve at a global scale, especially if we look at the mismatch between the general complexity of the world and the sort of median average mental capacity for for making sense of that complexity, um, so it's it's not actually clear to me what what path forward in sense making looks like, and it's it, it seems to me that that also is an underappreciated sort of existential threat to the very basis of de- democracy, right? Because if 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 you have a population that can't make sense of the world that it lives in, then uh, how are you gonna even even with a perfectly working democratic system, how are you gonna uh, navigate that world as a collective. So that's hard. And in, it, it seems to me that in our relationship to technology and in our relationship to this hyper abundance of information that's available for many, many people, we already know what it is that we need to do, right? We, we all have a sense of, oh, if I could only you know, work out a bit more, if I, I could only uh, sit down every morning and, and write for an hour, uh, if I could only do this thing. So to me, it seems like a lot of the good stuff about humanity gets lost in the gap between our intentions and our actions. And that's where sense-making can get you better intentions, but then agency and go- better choice-making is what's going to get you better, like actions that, that align with these intentions and. That to me seems like a like a massive opportunity um, and a and, and massive bottleneck in human development. And it's also I think that there's there's a recursive feedback loop between them where if you don't have the agency to do the things that, that you think are good for you, then that's gonna uh, that's gonna undermine your your sense making because you're not even going to try to make sense of it you're not even going to try to find out you know what what's a more wise and and what a more evolved version of yourself would look like if if you find yourself unable to even you know go to the gym five times a week if that's your intention Um, Mm -hmm. and so i think there's there's something about this fundamental agency and this fundamental freedom to put our attention on what what we want to put our, basically, to put our attention on what's important to us, um, that if we don't have that, we're going to slide into nihilism, and we're effectively giving up on, on life and on trying to make sense of it all.
0: So sense-making is, is a huge problem, and it's not clear how to solve that problem, but we can take action on improving choice-making right away, and even if you made sense of things, you'd still have to act on them. And in order to make sense of things, that's already an action that you have to be capable of and have a, a good enough self, <laughs> an adequate life resulting from your choice making to be able to start engaging in better sense making anyway. Yes, exactly. All right. I saw this phrase, phase shifting human sovereignty. <laughs> so what what is this phase shift? What is what you know from what to what is this shift in sovereignty?
1: Uh so um this is this is I don't know I wrote this almost two years ago. Uh, I was heavily inspired by by Daniel Schmachtenberger's work. Uh as you might have guessed <laughs> uh as I think I made explicit there it's a it's a fundamental transformation between where we are right now, Uh, I think in this context, especially in our relationship to technology, where technology is actively playing the game of of human attention and human choice making against us and against our best interests, diminishing our capacity to, to do the things that are meaningful to us, diminishing our capacity to do the things that would increase our capacity and away from that into a new relationship with technology, where it it becomes a it becomes a positive feedback loop, where it increases our day to day attention and focus and intentionality, uh, which is sort of developmentally effective, which helps us do more of the things that turn that, that make us more more capable. Um, and I think if you apply the the negative feedback loop of making you more addicted, more outraged, more polarized, less intentional. If you, if you put these dynamics into the daily interaction of billions of people over a few years, you're going to see society and its capacity to do meaningful things, deteriorate. And if you can turn it around our hope is that um, that can make a, that, that that is one of our best bets at um, meaningfully shifting the human capacity for doing
0: what's, what's needed to do. Uh, Schmachtenberger, I think, and you might've touched on this in your talk with Jim the other day, um, defines sovereignty as having sort of these three aspects of sentience, intelligence, and agency, and your overall mm-hmm. sovereignty is limited by how low you are on whichever one's the lowest of those. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your weakest in that mm.
1: <laughs> yeah i should I should have a much clearer answer to that than than a deep breath mm. i think it's it's still agency both uh, really interesting question and I think it's 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 really dependent on the environment that I'm in. Uh, so I think my agency is highly dependent on the environment that I'm in. So if I'm in an environment where, where I'm connected with, you know, people that I love and and where I have the the space and the conditions to do the things that are meaningful to me, then uh, I'm fairly high on agency. Uh, but then if I'm, if I'm faced with negative emotions and loneliness and, and those sort of things, my agency, uh, uh, can can decline quite a bit, and I think yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's agency and and I think it's also fair to say that that sort of inadequacy is a co- is a core has been a core driver of this whole research and of this whole inquiry um, because I've been on the experiencing end of technology playing the game of attention against me, and I've been on the sort of sixteen hours of YouTube screen time a day, uh, addiction spirals, and I've, I've experienced it viscerally how, how technology can, you know, rob you of, of of freedom and and dignity, or maybe it's just that you're in, in bad conditions and you're vulnerable and then it's, it's exploited by it and it doesn't make you feel safe and it doesn't make you feel free and it doesn't make you feel hopeful and leaves you with a very conflicted uh, sense of yourself at the end of such a spiral. So I'm building potential because I need it uh, as much as anyone else. And uh, I think that's that, that points to agency being the lowest one.
0: Yeah, agency is such a, I mean, it's an ancient human problem. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. Some people think of spirituality as just their ability to recognize and affirm higher values but there's mm. also this life of practice mm. and discipline, right? Which is sort of oh, yes. how do you turn your values and insights into actions? How do you close that, you know, intention action gap, right? And then yes. working on this for a long time, there's all kinds of philosophies about building up your willpower and things like that. Yes. Um, in, in addition to all that stuff that we've been doing through history how do we begin to think about how to augment it with technology now? Like, how do you start to try to solve that the problem of intention with our new tools?
1: Hmm. Before we jump into that, just, just one thing that just occurred to me as you said that is yeah. in this, in this community, I think it's, it's definitely the agency. I was at the emerge gathering in Berlin uh, a few months ago. And um I think I'm I'm going to offer for next year I'm going to offer them to to host a session uh titled something like get the fucking money mm. um <laughs> because it's like we have a lot of good intentions and we have a lot of wisdom in this community and there's been you know a lot of wisdom and a lot of good intentions in similar communities in in sort of uh, historic uh precursors to this uh, community that had a lot of wisdom yeah. and where do we see it reflected in the world, right? And so I think that it's, it's this shying away from, from money, from power, from effectiveness in the real world. And it's this sort of what uh, Hansi Freimacht calls game denial, right? Where if, if we just say, okay, capitalism is the problem, right? And, and we can't really, we can't work with capitalism because that's at the source that's at the root of the problem, then how are you going to do something in the real world at scale that moves the needle in any meaningful way if billions of people are merely the consumers of what the market presents them? And so I think there's, there's something about agency and about realizing just how capable we are uh, to reshape the world around us. Um and how actually, if we want to live a truly intentional and a truly wise life that lives up to our values and anything that we and, and that is actually in service of anything that we care about effectively, then that requires us to remake basically the entire world that was made by humans. And um, in that context, to me, it feels like there's an imperative to increase our own effectiveness and to increase our own capacity and to to provide conditions to ourselves and to others, uh, that are conducive of, of advancing of, of advanced development. Because if we don't, then whoever has the agency, but doesn't have the wisdom, is going to run the show. And in my business, in my industry, that's, you know, that's Facebook, that's TikTok, that's, uh, the attention economy and, dump profit maximization at the expense of human freedom and dignity. And that's not a good state of of things. So we need to do something about it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. There's a real I used to make this joke that if the Dalai Lama doesn't control death squads, then he's Mm. by default allowed someone less wise than himself to control death squads. And there he's somewhat responsible for what they do then. (laughs) Right. And that is like a general humorous way of looking at this problem of the wisest people don't necessarily have the most agency. Uh, So we've got to do something about that. And the money problem is a huge part of that because that represents the amount of of share of the society over which you can pattern things. So we do have to, in these communities, um, make each other more powerful and wealthier and more influential, or the wisdom that we're all relating to isn't going to have any force in the world. And then we're, to some degree, responsible for what happens to the world then. Uh, So it would be sure be nice if there was an app that helped us get more money. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean imagine like uh, in in the in the western world the average person you know works probably 8 hours a day and there's another let's say 4 hours a day that are filled up with entertainment. If, if we can replace two of these entertainment hours with meaningful personal development over five years, that's gonna make a huge difference in in the trajectory of that person's life. Now, if we never learned, if we never had the tools, if we never had the education to how how to develop ourselves, then that's not going to happen. And if our technology is designed to do the very opposite, and, and if we don't have you know, uh, sufficient tools that help us make these desired behaviors easy to the point that they are possible for us, uh, then it's not going to happen. So let's say personal development is, is somewhat upstream of making more money hopefully <laughs> or or at least be, being able to create more value right and then yeah, hopefully exactly. that's upstream of, of making money without externalities
0: you mentioned uh hansi's concept of game denial and there definitely is a you know in our communities a tendency of people to pull back a little bit not want to fully engage in game a <laughs> competitive activities that they don't like Um, So we have to, on the one hand, overcome that and challenge that in ourselves and become better players. But on the other hand, we have to be careful when we do that, that our approach doesn't just duplicate the problematic patterns that we see everywhere in modernity, right? So especially when we're setting up companies and setting up apps, how do we do that in a way that doesn't just become part of the problematic system, regardless of what our original intention was?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question
0: um so many so many
1: dimensions in which to answer that question i think a fundamental one is trusting ourselves and like if, if in our case getting the technology right getting the product right getting the design right uh, getting to product market fit, getting initial traction, that's a really hard problem. <laughs> it's really hard. And inventing new governance structures uh, to keep ourselves accountable, that's also really hard. And it takes a lot of resources. And I, at, at the very least, I need to trust myself that, you know, whatever the system that's currently in place, let's say you know the race to the, bottom di- race to the bottom dynamics of the attention economy, and whoever's in charge, let's say Mark Zuckerberg uh, as one of them, whatever that system is, it's, it's basically the worst possible, the, the worst imaginable set of incentives to be linked to the technology that mediates the attention and behavior of 3 billion people. And so I think if we can design something that is in alignment with our own values uh, and get that to, you know, moderate success, uh, that's going to be better than whatever that system that, that currently dominates is. But That requires us to be really careful about how we pick our business model, about how we design our value proposition, about how we raise money, if we raise money, how we finance the venture, how we structure decision-making power within the company, uh, and then how we long-term anticipate dangers around being, being hijacked by, by, spe- by special interests. And basically, the most fundamental one is, I think, is the value proposition, right? Facebook, in my opinion, doesn't really doesn't really have a has a have a value proposition. Their mission statement of connecting the world is is basically just a pretense for leveraging the human need for social connection as as the basis for hijacking attention and and getting us addicted to entertainment and and uh showing more ads and making more ad revenue Um, that's not a value proposition right you don't pay facebook so you're not the customer so getting rid of advertisement as a business model is a pretty good first starting point uh and then assuming that if you create value people are going to be willing to pay for it um is another fundamental that i think is important and if we're going to do anything meaningful, uh, then we need to get really good at creating, at designing products that are a lot more valuable than what's currently out there, right? If you think about, if you're into co-living, for example, and you want to you know, cr- bring co-living to, to a greater audience, then you need to figure out how to do co-living really, really well. And you need to figure out how to make it easy and how to out-engineer all the things that make it uh, not attractive to, to a large audience. And probably if you want to do that really effectively, you're going to have to leverage technology uh, in powerful ways. And then you package that and you offer that to the market and it needs to be better than what's currently out there, a lot better. And then people, will, if it is, people will be willing to pay for it. Um, and then once you're at that point, once you have product market fit, once you, you see initial traction and growth, uh, then at least that's, that's what we're planning to do. Then you can focus on how do you design the governance structure, um, that makes sure that there is something like a golden share in the hands of a foundation, uh, that is stewarded by people who have. Uh, the legitimate wisdom uh, that's needed to, to operate this? Um, yeah, it's, it's a really hard question.
0: It's very interesting because, I mean, it, it's easy to ask a question like, why would we even think that sovereignty enhancing media would outcompete media that undermines sovereignty? But what gets, mm. what's not really being inspected there is, the undermining systems aren't really offering us much, right? All Facebook has is the fact that everybody else is on Facebook. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really provide you with very much. So Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be too difficult to provide something that's more valuable than that. If it provides some kind of um, quick turnaround empowerment for individuals, they should be willing to pay for that and become kind of positively addicted to it in some way.
1: Yeah, and that's that's highly context-dependent, right? Like Facebook and and Google and all these companies became trillion-dollar companies because they made something previously scarce hyper-abundant. Now that communication and information and entertainment is hyper-abundant, there's no way you're going to build a meaningful business. Yeah. Uh, or I mean, there's plenty of opportunities actually to uh, you know provide better information diets, to provide uh, curated uh, media, and and so on. Uh, but that's, that's f- for a smaller audience, but there's no way that you're going to create a new trillion dollar industry um, on these sort of value propositions of entertainment and, and communication. Um, and so l- we need to look for what's, what's scarce right now so we can make, figure out how to make that abundant.
0: Other than Daniel Schmachtenberger and Daniel Thorson, hmm. who are your favorite Daniels?
1: Gertz, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, of course, one of the Hanzis. Uh, Kazantian, um, who's together with Peter Lindbergh in involved with the Stoa uh, and, and doing amazing things there with beyond self-discipline. Uh, let's see. These are, these are the four that come to mind.
0: <laughs> Those are the top Daniels. By far and away the best Daniels.
1: <laughs> also, fun fact, actually my, my second
0: name is, is also Daniel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> did you watch uh, Schmackenberger and Tristan Harris on Joe Rogan? Of course. Uh, what did you think about that? What do you think they um, communicated well? And what would you have liked to have seen more of?
1: I think they were trying really hard. I think they might've been trying a bit too hard. Mm. Um, and I think this, and I, um, you know, I talked to both, uh, I, I talked to the team at, at humane tech. I gave input on the, on the humane tech foundations course. And I've like, we, we've had many, many conversations about how to think about, you know, advancing humane technology. And it's, it's hard, right? Like you, 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 on the one hand, you have sort of the industry with a lot of people, a lot of capable technologists who don't have the care, don't have the imagination, don't really have this sort of sense of activism of like, oh, there's something wrong and and I have, I need to do something to fix it. Um, And on the other hand, you have very idealistic people. And I've I've organized humane tech meetups and I've connected with many people in in this in the field, and there's a lot of good ideas, and there's a lot of great and very well-intentioned projects. Um and it's also it's similar to metamodernism because we're sort of we have the modern attention economy, we have the postmodern humane tech critique of it. And then what comes next, right? What's the synthesis? After we deconstructed the whole thing, okay, we have the arms race, we have the slot machine in your pocket, we have all of these things. What's our synthesis of what we should do instead? And I think, like, that's what we're trying to do with potential, right? Uh, And that's where we think, Uh, we need to dream a bit bit harder and we need to imagine how good technology could be, right? This whole stack that powers uh, the attention economy, like big data, very powerful algorithms, uh, hyper-personalization, persuasive design, all of these things could be repurposed towards more meaningful ends that are aligned with your best interest. Um, And that's what we're working on. Um, But how to, you know, how to communicate that whole thing to, to a lot of people and how to communicate the, the, the underlying paradigm uh, is really hard. And, and I think one, one thing that, that I maybe would, would have would like to see more prominently in, in the humane tech sort of uh curriculum and in the humane tech narrative is the business case i think humane tech is is a is a huge opportunity because obviously if like it's it's, it's very different from previous types of activism where if you want to do something about fast fashion and and its externality so if you want to do something about uh fishing and uh, uh, sort of the exponential type fishing um and if you want to do something about fossil fuels and climate change then the thing that has been preached by uh, the environment by the environmental movement is uh, the very unsexy restrict right uh, reduce your consumption, and that's something that actually decreases your game theoretic, like your, your capacity in a the game theoretic concept, concept. Now, with attention, it's different because as a consumer, you, like you are the thing that is being mined. You are the thing that that is the object of extraction, and so you can make a choice to choose something else that will not extract from you, but that will regenerate you and that will immediately increase your, your ability in a game theoretic concept, uh, context. So the con the consumer has a choice. And so in order to give that consumer a choice, we need to like, one really effective way of advancing human technology is to build it. (laughs) Um, and to tell a story about why building it is. A huge opportunity. Yeah, and to show that it to show that it can, that it can yeah, be done,
0: which is hard. Yeah, I, I think you're right that the, uh, for example, a lot of the environmental movement has focused too much on reduction, uh, which is a not attractive to people because we're oriented towards growth, uh, but b we need to be growing in order to be gaining the capacity to make the changes we want. So there's the sense that right now, everybody who's using any of the digital systems is leaking. <laughs> so just to mm. plug that leak and to start to fill up with your own energy and attention seems like a great starting point because we have to have some... Something that's a growth model, but a qualitative growth model, not just a, mm. a quantitative growth model. Something that makes us more powerful in the right kind of way, sort of, you know, Brett Weinstein's got this argument about the fourth frontier. We have to have the experience mm. of growth and accumulation that evolution has designed us to require, but we have to mm. do that in a way that actually just makes our experience better and better, rather than requiring us to steal things from other people so that we have more than them. Yes. And and. Trans- tech- and, and,
1: and- the, the great thing is that turns out to be a positive sum game,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Like everything that is based on extraction is more or less a zero sum game yeah. where if, you, if we are competing for the attention of every single human being on the planet, then like there is only so much attention that can be mined and there is only so much, uh so much, um, God damn it, I'm lacking the word. <laughs> There's only so much ground on which that attention rests, right? There's on, only so much basis of that attention that once it's undermined enough and once it's extracted enough, you have the complete collapse of that and you have uh, addiction, you have mental health issues, you have polarization you have all these things and you see democracy collapse and you see... Uh, The free words go to pieces and you're like, God damn it. Now China owns my company. (laughs) Wasn't worth it after all. Um, So it's a, it's a, it's a zero sum game. But if we play the game of, of realizing human potential and, and, and going to the vastness and the ingenuity, then that's a positive sum game. And there's no, there's no ceiling on, on how much value we can co-create, really.
0: uh, I thought Daniel and Tristan did a good job of sort of laying out the problem, Mm -hmm. uh, describing the (laughs) meta-crisis. And they also did a good job of saying, here's the design constraints we would require. This is whatever the solution is, it has to meet these requirements. And we wish a lot more people were aiming at these target conditions. But Rogan's response was very often, Yeah, but do you know what people are actually like? (laughs) They're probably not going to do that. If we talk to each other, we're like, yeah, okay, we we could do this. We're like this. We'd like to get better at these things. But most people are nowhere close to being able to do that. And in a way, Mm -hmm. his critique was bringing it back down to the practical level of just the average person's life. And that's Mm -hmm. part of what I like about what you're doing with potential is that the the immediate empowerment in the lived conditions of individuals seems like the place where the synthesis has to occur, right? So it's one thing to go, "What does the meta modern synthesis look like?" But also, mm. where? What's the access point around mm. that, that coordination is going to occur? And it's it's your actual lived life, and everyone mm. else's actual lived life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that. And it's, I mean, that's part of our strategy, right? Similar to how Tesla first made a roadster to then finance the the limousine to then finance the SUV. And then finally the sort of more mass market model three, um, I think we're aiming for the people that are already aware of their need for intentionality, the people that are already somewhat like a cyborg, right. Who use a lot of technology and, and who who also intend to use it for the, for uh, the ends of, of personal development and well-being and fitness. Um, but then ultimately, the long game is, can we, can we make the best possible technology for these people? And then can we make that paradigm accessible to billions of people? And can we make the product and the tool uh, accessible to you know, great numbers of people? And I think that's going to be pretty hard. But what I find uh, hope hope inspiring is how it basically, like you you see it happening with meditation and mindfulness. Before that, you saw it happening with physical fitness. And so if we can bring a more wholesome sense of intentionality to the market um, and provide a tool that makes it accessible and that makes it as easy and as attractive and as rewarding as possible.
0: Um, we think that's going to be good. I think that would be fabulous. What do you, what's your sense of what the next couple of steps are for your project? Like what does potential do right now? What would you like it to be able to do in two years or in five years? Where, where is it's go? Where's it going next?
1: Yeah. So Right now it's you, you, you know, You put in your intentions, you put in your schedules. Uh, So for example, you put in your morning routine, right? Let's say between six and nine in the morning, I want to meditate. I want to work out and I want to read or I want to journal. And then if there is something on your phone that you want to do in relation to these intentions, like for example, I want to do my daily meditation with the waking up app, or I want to listen to a specific playlist while I'm journaling, or I want to record my run, while with Strava, while I'm going for a run. Um, And you put in these integrations and then it all comes together on your home screen so that you unlock your phone in the morning and you see the potential widget with these three intentions for your morning, and you can tap them and you can jump right into that meditation or jump right into recording that workout. Um, And that's, that's already, Profound difference in, in the sort of daily choice architecture that your phone offers you um, and we want that to be a lot more smooth, a lot more customizable so that you can not just you know set schedules but you can plan your day and you can set intentions for you know maybe tonight at, at seven after dinner I want to do this um, that you can have integrations to not just the apps on your phone, but have all sorts of more more advanced integrations that, that makes that make a bunch of things a little bit easier and a little bit more more powerful that that give you sort of an, an incentive to do it in in the context of potential. Um, and then auto completion is something that we already have a little bit today, where, for example, if you if you do your workout with a workout app and it writes to Apple Health then we can check that workout off for you, right? We know it's done, we know it's complete and it's automatically tracked. The same goes for your meditation, your mindful minutes, um, or for example, your, your wake up time. So if I say, I want to wake up at six in the morning, I can set a, an auto-completion so that it's automatically completed if I wake up at, before 6.30, let's say. That's, what it's, that's most of what it's doing today going forward uh we wanted to like the the process of setting good intentions is really hard (laughs) if you zoom out and if you just think about you know what what to do with your life and and how to live on a day-to-day basis and how to take all the wisdom that you've ever learned and sort of make a synthesis of it of like this is how i'm going to live today uh that's really hard even like, you know, that, that's hard for me. I, maybe, it's, maybe it's hard for you. It's hard for a lot of people. And, and especially if you've never really thought about that, that's really hard. And so one thing that I'm exploring right now that we'll implement throughout this year is a, a process that helps you uh, based on your aspirations, based on your values, based on the outcomes that you want in your life. What are some of the objectives that you can focus on let's say over the next three months. And then how do these objectives translate into day-to-day activity Um, so that it's not just you're scheduling the things that you're sort of interested in doing right now, but it's, it's grounded in, in, in your objectives and your aspirations in, 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 in sort of a higher level intentionality. And that, that includes things like, maybe I want to, learn about something. Maybe I want to go through certain processes. So that's something we're looking at. How can we um, take an objective like learning a certain type of meditation and then leverage all sorts of media that's out on the internet, right? There's there's plenty of information available on the internet. Can we take that and turn that into a, into a curriculum for self-education? And can we put that in the context of your daily scheduling and choices so that, that it becomes sort of baked into the things that you want to do. Um, And then long-term, we're hoping to, use the data that we have available and and build algorithms and, and recommendation systems that suggest you the kinds of things that would be more nourishing for you to do than let's say scrolling Twitter. So let's say you're on your phone, you open Twitter without thinking about it. And we would want to show you, you know, three choices that we think based on your objectives, based on your current state, you know, how well you've slept, how often you've been meditating, how present you've been. uh, What are the three choices that we can present you with that you will look back on as more time well spent, more wise than scrolling Twitter? And then zooming out a bit more, can we look at the developmental trajectories of, you know, okay, you have these objectives, and there's maybe ten thousand people like you that had similar objectives, that had you know similar psychometrics, that had similar uh, life situations, and can we look at what worked for them, right? Can we look at, oh, maybe actually for for this kind of person, uh, working out just, just like. Bodyweight exercises don't work at all, but maybe joining a, a yoga class uh, with a small group really does work. So, can we accelerate this process of figuring out what works for us and what's actually enjoyable for us um, based on data, based on, on the people like us? So, that's sort of, and, and of course, not just on your phone, but across your complete digital environment, basically.
0: Uh, Two things I really like in that. One is that moment of pause and choice where a person gets to consider what else they might want to do. Uh, And the second one is this sense of a a more longer range and more interpersonally comparative self-awareness that's based in some data about what's actually worked for people. Because one of the problems with intentions is we often don't interrogate what our intentions and values are. In some right? I make a New Year's resolution. Some of them are very straightforward. I probably should be doing my Wim Hof breathing and eating more broccoli. Okay. And I need to do something to make that easier. But on the other hand, I might have intentions that keep failing because they aren't really what I should be doing. And the, the complexity of my system is undermining them because I have the wrong idealistic notion of what a person should be. So, Mm. knowing from other people who may be similar to myself, who've done things and what was the result of what's the feedback. Like if somebody adopted this diet, I think I should adopt. And they all say, yeah, it wasn't very useful. <laughs> I didn't like it. Then maybe that's the wrong motivation, the wrong aspiration. And getting that yeah. sense of feedback is really important. And I think that's a huge problem. Generally in, in the internet right mm-hmm. now is we don't have a way of really integrating the responses to things. If Google, provides me with some results, I don't really get to say, these are the results I wanted, (laughs) or Mm -hmm. not. They're not interested in that, that would interfere Mm -hmm. with the project they're working on. So some way for people not just to provide things, but to harness the information about what was working and how satisfied people were with those things, and to be able to share that with each other, that's enormously valuable. Yeah. And that's, all of that is sort of the
1: medium of choice part of things right and then you then you have the social part of that where can we give you the tools so that even if you're alone in your studio apartment in berlin you still feel a sense of presence of your friends you still feel connected and you still feel like you're in a community of practice right can we give you that sense of let's say a monastery let's say in an, an accountability group can we give you tools to share this process of figuring out what it is that you want to do with your life and how to integrate that in your day-to-day choices. That's, uh, we think that's a fundamental human need, especially as technology, uh, increasingly creeps up on this very, very intimate freedom to choose, to choose our lives. And obviously as social, social animals, that, that can have a lot of influence on, on how we do things
0: the, the limit on our own visceral memory, I think is a real problem for human beings. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't have a sense that's an actionable sense of how we operate over longer range patterns. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: any tool that can give us that, like I've, you know, not to be too sexist, but I I've I've known a lot of women in my life who don't notice that their menstrual cycle has started. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's not, there's no use to the kind of psychology that might come out of the menstrual cycle, but it would be nice for people to know that they're in a predictable cycle and that the, what they're thinking and feeling is not a surprise. It's like, oh, this is where I am in this cycle. Right. And there's so many cycles that I could potentially know about, right. Do I get excited about Zen Buddhism every 214 days? I don't know. There's no way for me to intuitively track that. I need some mm-hmm. external system to track me over long ranges of time and be able to bring that information to me so that I have that additional form of mindfulness available to me.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's, it's not just cycles, it's also just buckets, right? Yeah. Like we have, it's, it's almost like, you know, there, there was something about sims that was pretty spot on, which is we have certain needs. And if we don't eat, we're going to be hungry. And if we don't once we're hungry, we're going to starve at some point. Right. And so just keeping, keeping our needs yeah. in mind and, and being, keeping an awareness and not sort of falling into mindlessness, falling into compulsivity. And that's, that's actually, I think where there's a deep connection between distraction and need meeting, because once we, f- once we, once we, neglect our needs, Let, let's say we're not, we're not totally proactive about our needs. Mm-hmm. And then we, we didn't sleep where well, we skipped our meditation and we sort of start our day checking our emails and doing this and that. And then at some point you just slip into mindlessness and Twitter is happy to take you and Facebook is happy to take you, and Instagram is happy to take you. And so can we just catch ourselves when it's like, oh yeah, what is it that I actually need right now? What is it that would like help me shift my state in a meaningful way. We think that's, that's a really, I think that's a really important question.
0: I think it's extremely important. And bringing intention and need together is really important because there's a tendency Mm -hmm. to set ourselves aspirational intentions uh, of what we imagine a person could be without really paying attention to the needs that sustain us and make us capable of inhabiting that, right? I might want to meditate for six hours a day, but I might be in a bad mood just because I didn't have that glass of water. And I don't want to be a person who has to have that water. I'd like to just be perfect already. right? So getting, getting our intentions to match and collaborate with our needs is really important because a lot of people have a, a, a reticent feeling towards needs in general. right? They, there's something... Yeah slightly offensive about having
1: needs (laughs) Mm.
0: we've got to get over that and we've got to make sure our intentions are not just to get better our intentions are also to get our actual needs met and figure out what our actual needs are
1: yes and there's especially something nasty about how unmet needs and also violated values uh, express themselves in our emotions right and so every negative emotion is an experience to clarify what's important to us and to clarify what it is that we need in this moment of time. But then if our default response to any negative emotion is to numb or to distract ourselves with, you know, the, the, whatever source of cheap dopamine is most available to us at that moment in time, we're not going to be able to be in touch with that and to meet that need more effectively. Um, and I, uh, Joe Edelman's, um, the founder of the school for social design, previously human systems, uh, emotions to values. Uh, journaling has been, has been very, very life-changing for me. And um, that, that's one of the ways in which we think about sort of, okay, if you go to Twitter, maybe you actually want to go to Twitter, maybe you don't. If you don't, is there an emotion that you want to pay attention to? And is there an underlying need that we can help you quickly identify and suggest the choice that, you know, is actually possible for you to take, right? Because maybe a three-hour meditation isn't the right thing, but drinking a glass of water and then going for a walk and maybe calling a friend is totally possible. Um, so yeah, emotions and, uh, are a huge uh, part of, of being aware of our needs.
0: Yeah, I love that you mentioned negative emotions there because they seem like they play such a key role. It's often uninspected in this. Like uh, it seems to me that a lot of the historical systems that tried to build up the force of human intention and choice making um, really found ways to leverage remorse or things like that. Right. The bad feeling Mm. we get from not having enacted our intention is something we have to be open to. It's sort of like a fire that changes us and gives us some energy. Mm. So there's one thing like we're going to set up a system where it's easier and smoother for you to get your intentions met. But we also have to figure out how to um, make these negative feelings, which are related to our values, something that we can assimilate and use and, and, and be empowered by. Yeah. Else, You know, there's a. Um... Obviously, engagement is the general metric that's being used for digital and social media systems at the moment. And it's obviously a flawed metric in the way that GDP is a flawed metric for how well the economy is doing. So what, you know, what is a better metric than engagement? Or what's a better way of thinking about engagement that would make it, you know, how do we know, what do we look at to tell us whether a system that we've set up is working well?
1: <laughs> how to make a metric without eating the word um
0: <laughs>
1: how to design software without causing war and depression uh again I, joe edelman's work is is great on that um anyone working on software listening to this i can highly recommend the the sort the course um that they offer it's probably going to be a set of metrics it's probably going to be a set of end-time metrics as well in, in our, and it's, again, it goes back to the value proposition, right? If, if you have a genuinely meaningful value proposition, and if you interview people on, you know, how do you feel about this product and does it improve your life in a meaningful way? And the answer is, uh, no, it kind of gets in the way, like, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's not like Facebook doesn't have the metrics available to them to know that their product isn't necessarily uh, helping in, in many ways. And so that sort of qualitative metric, I think is hugely important. Another one, another just principle is, am I more capable and effective after using this tool when I stop using the tool or when I stop using the product? So am I, have I become more calm just by using the product? And, and that's, where we think um, time well spent actually is a great metric. Again, going back to Joe Edelman's work, um, because if you look back on it and you experience regret, that's probably a sign that there was a meaning that there was something more meaningful that you could have done. And so, can we optimize for the opposite of regret? Can we optimize for a life well lived? Uh, can we, and then that leads in, into all sorts of interesting questions, like how do we define that? Who are we to know? Who are we not to know? Who could know? What kind of questions could we ask to figure out? And what's a legitimate definition of that? And, and what kind of carefulness and depth of inquiry do we need if we are to mediate the attention of billions of people? And is, are we ever going to approach the point where that's sort of uh, sufficient? Probably not. So you probably also want some sort of educational access to this where you actually increase people's capacity to think about what is a life well-lived and, and what does it mean for me. And some combination of all these things.
0: The thing that stands out to me there about um, regret and time well-spent is that it's a different time frame. Than engagement. Engagement is what's happening right now. And reflecting on your experience requires some time to have passed. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. aware of this thing that went on with the back in the 80s, they did the blind taste test with Coke and Pepsi, Mm -hmm. right? So that people who were blindfolded and thought they liked Coke would drink the Pepsi and go, oh, I prefer the Pepsi. But that only happens with one sip, right? Turns out those same people, if they drink an entire can, prefer the Coke because it has less sugar and less salt. So depending on where you get the feedback you get a different result in the moment of the movie i might be like oh this is a lot of this is a nice action movie and then later an hour later i'm like actually that movie kind of sucked so depending on where we take the measurement we get a different kind of qualitative feedback
1: yeah and then the question becomes uh, i think i don't know, what's your definition of wisdom if you have one yeah easily <laughs> <laughs> either, either i got three or four.
0: <laughs> I mean, um, I think it's a it's the ability, it's the fusion of metacognition and ongoing learning is probably what I would say. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I would like to offer one that is probably very compatible with that, which is knowing the consequences the long-term consequences of your actions. And so in order, if we think about advancing human wisdom, right, how, and advancing human, human wisdom in a moment of time when most of us are systematically powerfully conditioned for immediate gratification, uh, for instant gratification, what would it mean to, to widen our our time span of awareness of our consequences. And one pretty good question is like, you know, at the end of your life, what what do you want to look back on? Uh, And maybe at some point you can think about, you know, seven generations from now, but um, I feel like any of the, or like most of these reflections, if if they're going deep enough and if they're genuine and and not coming like n- not sort of held back by by conditioning, then that's probably gonna include something about service. And it's in, gonna include something about yeah, being being in service of all of life and being in service of, of the well-being of conscious creatures and uh being a steward of of life and evolution and so then if, if we can find that as our highest long-term aim then we only need to figure out how to live that and how to shape a world that makes it possible to live that for ourselves and for others
0: yeah i think um, a- another idea that's very compatible with that is the you know the expansion of selfishness to larger scales Mm. Right. So there's yes. how do I be a good shepherd of what I want in five minutes, in a year, in ten years, for a thousand mm. years? Not just through time, also in the immediacy Earth-based. of like, how do more of my parts get satisfied? How do more of the mm. people I care about get satisfied? And over those larger scales, uh, I'm I mean, I yeah, yeah, curious. Yeah, <laughs> that that's a really nice place in the conversation. I don't want to rush past it, but I have another curiosity about. Um, profiling, because profiling is key to all of this and to some of the future possibilities you're talking about with potential is you have to have a good, uh, some way of getting a good map of who a person is and who another person is that might be like that person where they would provide useful feedback, right? And we're in a world where there is a lot of profiling going on, but it's often not very satisfactory. This summer, I bought an electric, my lawnmower died. I bought an electric string trimmer. I ordered it. I got it. I'm using it. And the following week on Facebook and a number of other platforms, I start to get all these ads for electric string trimmers. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not bad, but who needs an electric string trimmer less than a guy who just got one, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? But that's because I'm not the customer. They're trying to convince the string trimmer people that I might want one. They don't care that I don't need one anymore, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a question there of the algorithms that are profiling us are they inadequate? Like, do we not have good enough algorithms yet to get a good profile of people? Or are they deliberately being skewed to not profile us as well as they could because they're actually in service of some other incentive? Like, what's the limitation on how good we can do that at the moment? And what's the limitation that just because we could do better, but we're not using it for that?
1: Uh, I think it depends on North, North Star, right? So if, if, like, if you give an algorithm or a set of algorithms you know, one key outcome to maximize, yeah. then they're going to become really great at, at maximizing for that outcome. And so while the, the specifics of you know, the content that we see might not be that great, if you zoom out, you're like, oh, fuck, it's a trillion dollar industry. <laughs> and it's, it's successfully selling attention to, to advertisers. which is also actually a really interesting thing to observe, right? Maximizing time on site to maximize advertising revenue to maximize shareholder profits is a very straightforward sort of problem definition. It's a very straightforward thing to, to build an organization around. The The inverse of that, uh, it's, a, it's a bit more complex, right? And so is it going to be possible to uh make algorithms that are effective towards a more wholesome set of ends i don't know
0: i hope so i'm i'm curious what you are looking at in terms of some future moment where you know a recommendation engine starts to get included in the potential app All right, because the recommendation engine usually either goes with, we came up with some categories (laughs) to put people in, or we're just matching Mm -hmm. people to other people who've done some similar things to them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, which of those are you going with or would you go with? What's your general sense of what's the psychometric data that would be useful in order order to figure out who is like me, (laughs) such that that would be a valuable suggestion that I might want to do what they did?
1: yes um, very very hard questions <laughs> i mean there's there, there's different layers to the recommendation right one one thing could just be uh, you know based on based on your aspirations, based on your objectives, here are the strategies that some others uh, are taking to achieve those same outcomes. maybe you can learn something from them. Something else could be if we uh, with the sort of moment to moment redirecting attention. So let's say, uh, again, with this example of you, you open a distracting website that you uh, mindlessly, and we ask you, you know, do you want to do one of these things instead? That's something where we can figure out, okay, this, you know, which of these work? And um, then we can look at, okay, which of these work for what kind of person? And there's there's like from, you know, ocean uh, big five to to the sorts of memes that you're interested in to the sort of aspirations that you have to your economic situation to your age like there's so many data points that could be relevant to it um that's it's basically impossible to predict uh you know which of these are going to make the difference but if you If you have high quality data and you, if you, uh, like I'm, I'm also, I'm I'm not a machine learning, uh, engineer, right? So if, if you, but if you hand it to a capable, uh, team of people who know what to do with it, and if you try to set metrics that don't lead to perverse incentives for the system, uh, we'll see what's, what's going to work.
0: Seems like somewhere down the road, um, biometric and neurological data would be important, right? If it turns out that everybody who succeeded with a certain approach had the same blood type or the same gut bacteria, Mm. or regardless of the verbal feedback they were able to provide, they all had the same fluctuation in the same part of the brain. So somewhere Mm. down the road, we're going to have to be able to get data that's more than just um, what people say about their experience and what they choose to click on. Yeah. Yeah. I think I that's think, going to be important because when we were talking about that Rogan thing about like you know the lived experience, mm-hmm. I think that's an important part because the lived experience is in the body, and often our relationship to systems is a little bit too socio-conceptual.
1: Yeah, I think one one thing that uh, that is going to come up over the next five to ten years uh, at a you know mass market scale is um, glucose tracking, mm-hmm. um, and so turns out metabolic fitness is, is kind of almost as important as sleep to basically all our uh, well-being and, 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 and fitness metrics uh, and lived experience. So uh, there's, there's a couple of companies, especially the most notable ones, Levels, working on this, where if you can make glucose, continuous glucose monitoring uh, as, unobtrusive, as unobtrusive, as affordable, and as sexy as possible... And if you can hook that up to algorithms and, and kind of take that data and then look at what food has been consumed by what kind of people and what's, what's been the, the metabolic response to it, that's hugely interesting. If you can connect that data with sleep data, that's hugely interesting. And if you then connect that data with you know, mood and, and other biomarkers, yeah. I think it's, it's possible to get a pretty good sense of where you are at. And it's also possible to have this sort of emerging bottom-up system of knowing your meet your needs and knowing how to meet them so that you're like, oh, actually, if I'm eating cake, uh, that's really not good for me. But if I take a walk afterwards, it's kind of fine. And if I eat rice for lunch, then I'm going to have a blood sugar spike and then a crash uh, in in the early afternoon. So maybe I shouldn't do that. So I, I think there's a lot of potential in this sort of data-driven, bottom-up insight into what actually works for me. And I th- think the incentive is there to figure out how to do that well, uh, for uh, across all kinds of areas of our lives.
0: I love the idea that someone's working on trying to make glucose tracking sexier.
1: <laughs> I think they're doing a great job. If you look at the website, it's motivating, honestly. Uh,
0: glucose is actually a great topic because... The, the the old thinking about intention, which is still somewhat valid, is that it's kind of like a muscle, right? You make yourself do things, and then you build up this capacity. But we also know some neurochemical things now that our ancestors didn't know, which is you need certain amounts of certain chemicals and often glucose in your blood to be able to make choices that work with your values. And if you don't have it, you sort of crash, <laughs> and you suddenly start behaving like a lunatic. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, something I'm curious about, which is, uh, your take on the overall idea of breaking down chunks and getting more texture on them. And, uh, that's pretty abstract, but like the Netflix recommendation engine often fails for me because it wants to know thumbs up or thumbs down. Did I like game of Thrones? And it doesn't allow me to go, you know what? I loved season four, hated season eight didn't really like the dialogue, but loved the sexiness, right? There's Hmm. no profile. And likewise, when you're thinking about creating an interface for people to use their apps, the whole app is sometimes the wrong chunk. Like, is Facebook a problem or are certain parts of Facebook a problem? Which bits would I like to be able to turn on and turn off? And there's a sense in which The chunking that we're doing to think about things is a limitation and we have to get more textured about our options. And that seems like a very general sort of issue.
1: Yeah, uh, that's actually super related to a a concept and a campaign that we're working on, which uh, is titled Attention Settings. So imagine you had OS-level settings on your phone where you can deactivate certain sections of certain apps so that you could still use Facebook, but instead of an infinite feed, you have maybe 10 posts and then you uh, click next to go to the next page. You maybe hide the videos tab, uh, you maybe put it into grayscale so that it's less engaging. And so we think that's a, that's a pretty promising way of level, level, leveling the playing field between you and, and those products and those companies. And we're actually also going to implement it in Potential uh, to just give you more control over how you want to be manipulated by the app, right? And and uh, yeah, and, and so being able to do that across all your digital environment and being able to turn off the things that don't work for you uh, is is definitely important.
0: I'm thinking of a question that I'm sure there's no good answer to, but you know we talk a lot about omni positive choice making and designing non rivalrous ways of being in the world that benefit individual societies ecosystems etc but ecosystems um, depend on killing eating and exploiting each other so there's a certain there may be a certain limit to what's omni positive like to what degree is as a world that always involves sacrifice and risk and inevitable death capable of being truly omni positive and, and what what's the allowable level of harm we have to accept even in an omnipositive system? Like, how do we work with harm as part of being omnipositive when that's so clearly how nature sets up its mutually beneficial win-win solutions?
1: Mm. <laughs> one, thing come, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, we can have all sorts of local harm, uh, but what's really important is that we, you know, focus on the existential global stuff. How do you do that with arms race scenarios? That's a good question. In an ideal world, you would be able to have a sort of great education system, you know, globally, uh, and you would have some sort of bottom-up education and enlightenment of the global population to realize that, oh, actually, uh, you know, existential risk is is really important to all of us. So let's make sure that we use our legitimate democrat- democratic voting power to uh, make systems that, that account for that. That's not the case. So um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure what it would take to do that, but.
0: Um... Yeah, I love the, the idea. Of, I mean, I think it is important what you're saying that local harm is different Than general harm, right? That one animal can eat another without collapsing the ecosystem or right? somebody dies on a plane crash, that's unfortunate. But if it causes the airline company to adapt to prevent that in the future, it contains that incident locally, then we're in a good situation. But if we have pandemics, we have nuclear events, we have biodiversity loss, we have ocean collapse, these are harms that cannot be locally contained within the complexity of the systems we're operating in. I'm uh, curious what what else like um, what other projects are going on that excite you? Like who's who's working on things you think oh that's compatible with the world that potential is building towards? Right. So obviously you can't design all of the systems for t- for a better tomorrow. Who else is doing good work? What what excites you?
1: What excites me? Uh, I love the work that Schmachtenberger and, and colleagues and friends are doing at. At the Consilience project, obviously, I think that's um, as good as a shot as we have towards towards better sense making. There's oh man, there's there's many there's many projects and and, and companies that, that I love. Not sure they are um, they are necessarily trending towards only positivity, right? So within that frame, let's see applying technology to help people sleep better that's helpful um, so aura for example is a, is a, is a company that, that I'm a big fan of uh, levels as i said to, uh, so I, I think there's a lot of good things happening for like personal productivity and, and, and fitness and well-being on a on a grander sort of systems change scale patagonia uh, i think is a is sort of a great example Tesla obviously uh, is, is like, and it's actually, it's, it's a great counter uh, example for humane tech, right? If, if, if we want to succeed at making human, advancing humane technology to a meaningful point, then we need every, like we need to make it also the best technology in the market. So similar to how Tesla showed that not just electric cars can be good, but electric cars can be, like the best car is electric, period. And so
0: I think we need a lot more Teslas in the world. Um, And
1: and I think there's a lot of opportunity to to create them.
0: Yeah, I think uh, people focus a lot on Musk's first principles thinking but I think we need to pay much more attention to this idea that you can maximize a lot of variables in a product right it should be it should be awesome it should do a lot of things really well and not just solve one problem
1: and 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 it needs to in order to be able to succeed at the market and that's actually why Tesla is such a great playbook to to look at and to you know think about any any problem so, for for example, I, I think one thing that I I'm really excited for the future is 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 co-living. Like, I think there's a massive opportunity to reinvent how people live together, uh, and there's massive demand for people living maybe going back to the countryside, maybe living in in smaller communities, while still, uh, you know, being forward-thinking. And so you you not just want sort of a, a hedonistic paradise, right? <laughs> but you want, and you also don't just want the, the very focused, very, the very hardworking culture. It's not either or, you want both, right? You want a higher level synthesis of an environment where you can feel really good, do really great work and increase your capacity and be, become a more evolved version of yourself. In the most wholesome way possible, and uh, applying the Tesla Playbook to everything that's involved in that process and everything that can make that possible, I think this is a hugely exciting opportunity
0: healthy evolving spiritualized rural cosmopolitanism <laughs> uh, <laughs> empowered by new styles of successful corporate leveraging of social media tools <laughs> sounds pretty good
1: <laughs> let's see what we can do
0: <laughs> all right well i'm i'm out of questions we could be done or is there anything else I haven't asked you about that you'd love to talk about?
1: I think it's really important to keep trying um, or to start trying. So um, with all the wisdom that we hold, like what's what's the one thing that we can do in our life that would make everything else easier for this sort of project of collective transformation that, that we share and really sticking with that question is both existentially meaningful and is, is a huge you know driver of of, of a bunch of the things that, that we want. But it's also really important to to like have this have this commitment, yeah. to have this inquiry and to to do whatever we can to become increasingly effective at it. And I think if we can do that collectively and if we can trust that we do that collectively then uh there's hope
0: that's beautiful you know to try and to inquire into what trying means i love that and i love that you're trying to solve your own agency problem in a way that helps us all solve our collective agency problem. so i appreciate that it's been lovely to talk to you wealth i encourage everybody to check out the potential app and uh would love to talk again sometime this is very stimulating
1: yes thanks layman Oh, uh-huh.